gardening taught me that actually change that holds is actually grown. It's not driven. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Well, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Today, I am delighted to be sharing a guest with you who I think you are going to find very interesting, Dr. Kathleen Allen, who is the author of Leading from the Roots, Nature-Inspired Leadership Lessons for Today's World. And Kathleen and I were talking before we started recording, and she was just sharing that she has been in leadership development essentially her entire life in some way, shape, or form. And so I think you're going to be able to get some real solid practical ideas today that you might never have thought about before and from a very different lens. So Kathleen, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it is also my pleasure. I'm so glad that you you were able to have time. This topic just intrigues me. Uh, as I shared with you, I am definitely a nature guy. I get so much out of my experience in nature, both the rejuvenation, the learning, the challenge, all of it. And, and so I'm excited to dive into your book today, Leading from the Roots. But before we do that, I ask every guest a question, and I want to ask you this too. What is the first time, if you reflect back, the first time that you thought of yourself as a leader? Oh, that's a lovely question. The first time I maybe identified myself as a leader was when I went to summer camp. And um, it was kind of the first time that you were out of your family context. And um, I began to see myself as a person that could be helpful and could serve others and um, had ideas that could help um, the work that we were trying to do together as, as a team. I think uh, if you're listening, you just got a good insight into Dr. Allen here. What did you just say? Your first memory of yourself as a leader is how you could be helpful, mm-hmm. how you could serve, and some of the ideas that would be beneficial to other people. And that's part of the, that whole package of leadership. Yes. What's your inner core? What's the purpose that you're here to serve? Uh, who do you serve? What's your highest possibility of what you can bring? And then what system do you want to work in? One of the lovely things about living systems is they they scale very easily. So you can go from this inner work to this outer action, um, as long as you're aware of what's going on both places. From the core to the system that you want to work in. So Leading from the Roots is the name of the book, Nature-Inspired Leadership Lessons for Today's World. And so I, I want to start with what might be an obvious question, but I sure there, I'm sure that there is some depth here for you, which is why did you write this specific book? I think this was the book that I was born to write and that I've been moving in some way, shape or form towards collecting this um, and writing out the kind of the deeper wisdom of, of how we can build out a new narrative for doing leadership in our world. I've always had a connection uh, to nature, um, a big gardener in addition to, you know, biker and hiker and whatnot. And I live on the Mississippi River, so I get to watch the water flow every single day. I've been working with individuals and teams and organizations and systems for most of my life, trying to create places where both individuals and the organization can thrive together. 
and the community that the organizations are in can thrive so that everybody in the system, the whole system is optimized. And so many of our narratives are about optimizing one part of the system instead of the whole system. So we prioritize money and short-term interests over long-term um, sustainability or regenerative or restorative practice. Let's dive into that just a little deeper because one of the things that you've mentioned gardening and, and for many years of my life, I'm not currently in a situation where I can, but for many years of my life, I've gardened and particularly from a leadership perspective, the reason I gardened among the fact that I liked getting the pumpkins and the tomatoes and, and everything, but one of the things I found beneficial was it reminded me of what I call real time. There's that high pressure time that we create in our organizations and in our cultures and then there's, call it real time or nature time, or I've heard it referred to as farm time, which is the actual time it takes for things to grow and develop. And so I'm curious, when you think of the time pressure and the timelines that you just talked about, how can leaders reframe? How can they tap into that real time or that garden time when they're in the middle of what are otherwise high pressure situations, maybe they're with colleagues or systems that aren't tapped into that. Yeah, so for example, much of my work has been in the intersection of leadership and change. And I used to think that driving change was actually the most effective and sustainable way to do it. So you drive it down from your top or your positional uh, leadership frame and the resources that you have. But gardening taught me that actually change that holds is actually grown. It's not driven. If you think about the planting process, the germination, you kind of plan your garden, your outcome, you put your seeds in the ground, you nurture and create the soil so the seeds can germinate. And then it takes time for the first shoot to pop up out of the soil. So the time delay between planting the seed and seeing the first shoot, the time delay between seeing the first shoot and seeing the blossoms that will eventually turn into tomatoes or squash. And then there's more time delay between the blossom and the actual fruit. So the harvesting from planting to harvesting is filled with time delays. But in our organizations, we seem to think that we can actually plan and deliver something on time regardless of whether the, the soil is prepared in the organization, regardless of the time it takes for people to adjust to the change that we want to invite them into, regardless of the amount of time it takes for people to support and help be involved and engaged in things that uh, you know, they're, they're helping you solve. And so we just kind of think literally that it's kind of like getting into our car and driving to a destination without regard to any other of the other players. And so now I really think growing change creates an opportunity. Living systems have certain characteristics. And one of them is that people only pay attention to what matters to them and they only support what they help to create. And we don't create sometimes in our businesses and organizations ways to allow that time for people to understand why it matters to do this work, to give them an opportunity to bring their knowledge and their insight and their wisdom to the change process so they actually support the end result. Well, I love that. What, something that you said there I want to highlight for everyone is that change that holds is grown. 
What a beautiful statement, but it's not just beautiful, it is fundamentally true. And I remember early in my leadership career doing exactly what you described of trying to say, hey, this is the change, and then realizing it was not, it was resisted, it wasn't understood. So what strategies would you recommend? What are two or three practical ways that a leader can go about helping to grow that change? Maybe they're leading a team and they're, they can see change is necessary. How, how can they grow that change so that it, it takes hold and it lasts? One thing that this book has done for me is it's caused me to ask different questions. And one of the questions is, what is the smallest thing that I can do to create the largest result? The reason why we tend to overdrive things, I think, in our leadership positions is that we seem to think that the energy, that we are the individuals that have to make the change and create the change. So part of our simple strategy for shifting our way of thinking is to shift the questions that we ask when we try to initiate change. If we assume a living, our organizations are living systems and they're interdependent, then the system itself will help us create the change that we're trying to create. That's if we let it. And how do we let it? Well, we let it by recognizing the interdependence. So sometimes if you just tweak over here, it can just align in a very simple way, realign the organization. Another thing that I've learned from living systems is that information and knowledge helps us, helps us change. And the third thing is that living systems are always in change. They are never static. And so most of us, when we start leading, we think that the organization is, is in a static place. And so we have to bring energy to the table to get it to move. But if you see your, your organization as a living system, then you're asking questions, what interactions will help make this work? How do I transform the energy that's already there? What kind of information or knowledge will help people see uh, the need for doing this work. Uh, how do I, that's a soil preparation frame for me, is what information needs to be shared to help people grow and evolve into change. When you change your inner mind, then everything else changes in the way you do your work. One of my favorite leadership maxims along those lines is that you don't motivate. Motivation always comes from inside a person. It's, it's an internal thing. So I often say, don't motivate cultivate. What environment are you preparing? What, and I love the way that you talked about what information are you giving people? Yeah. Uh, we, in a lot of our work, we'll run into leaders who are frustrated that their people are not thinking strategically. And then you really investigate and they have not given their people all of the context and information that they need in order to think strategically. So there is such value in that of giving everyone the information and the understanding that they need that can help with decision-making and creativity and problem-solving. And higher purpose matters too. One of the beautiful things about nature is it's, it's really driven on self-organization. There's no CEO in nature. It's a network system, but nature does have a very powerful purpose, which is to create conditions conducive to the life of future generations. So as leaders, we often, in hierarchies, um, the nature of hierarchies are structured that managers have more information than people who are reporting to them. 
you know, as you go up the hierarchy, there's more kind of generalized information that builds these kind of strategic muscles. When we look at our, our staff and we, and we say, why can't you think beyond tactical? It's because we've written job descriptions for them to focus on tactical things. We haven't written job descriptions that focus on outcomes. And if you want self-organization, they have to be outcome-driven outcome because that invites the creativeness inside of each of us to adapt and figure out how to get there. But self-organization that doesn't go empowerment gone wild is always driven on the framework of, of alignment to higher purpose. How good are we at developing and sharing the higher purpose? And then sharing all of the knowledge and insight that we're getting so people can start making decisions that help the organization accomplish things. One of the questions that you ask pretty early in the book, or it's a, a question that you encourage leaders, invite leaders reading the book to ask themselves. And I just think it's such a powerful question. I'd like you to talk a little bit more about it is changing your mindset to what can I unleash? So part of my history before I became a consultant and writer is uh, I used to work in higher education. I was a director of a student union at a a couple of different colleges. And we ran our student union almost on part-time student employees. Uh, 800 hours a week were built on student employees. So early on, I realized that all of the management books that I was reading really couldn't help me figure out how to unleash the creativity and the responsibility and the, um, just the energy of these students who were doing this for 10 hours a week or maybe 20 if they were lucky. And so I had to develop different techniques because these people really weren't motivated by the minimum wage that we were paying. They were motivated by purpose. They were motivated by having a passion for the thing that you were asking them to do. The unleashing and attracting people to the work became a much more viable thing because they basically had sovereignty over their workspace. They had the freedom to choose whether to show up and in what way to show up, and whether to show up with positive energy or neutral or negative energy. And my job was to create conditions for that positive energy to show up. So we use things like connections and authentic relationships and learning and developing and giving them an opportunity to grow. Those things really were very, very directly unleashing strategies. And it's, um, but it's unleashing with a purpose. And that purpose is this higher sense of what, who are you there to serve? And when you bring purpose, service, and unleashing and connecting and attracting to people's energy and interests, then all kinds of things happen. You talk about how leaders looking at nature can welcome resistance. What does welcoming resistance mean? Because I think I have obviously read the book and I have a good idea about that, but it's also, I think, something that people struggle with, uh, this idea of welcoming resistance. In quantum physics, opposition is required for wholeness. And I've always loved that frame because in human systems, especially systems that are more complex, dynamic, and networked, there's no one viewing point anymore that has the whole truth. So our old images were that the leader would crawl up the top of the mountain and uh, 
would have a full 360 degree view of the landscape. And then they'd shout down to the rest of us and say, oh, we're going to the left or we're going to the right because they can see the whole landscape. But in a flat networked kind of world that we're living in, there's no one viewing point that can see everything. So we need to invite lots of different perspectives to the table. And sometimes those perspectives are gonna be fundamentally opposite what you think the reality is. When you resist those different ways of thinking about it or viewing the problem, you basically lose a better decision. So we have to really be open to inquiring what is the difference? You know, how do you see it? Help me understand what you see so I can understand from their point of view what's going on. It's that old uh, frame of five blind men trying to understand what an elephant looks like. Instead of arguing that their individual reality of feeling the foot or the trunk or the tail or the body of the elephant or the, the ear, saying that, oh, my reality is right. In today's world, we literally have to say the only way we can understand that it's an elephant is to accept that everybody's point of view is real. So it's, it's almost more than welcoming resistance. It's seeking out the other. It's seeking out the other yes. perspectives. And yes. in, in our language, we call that channeling challengers of yes. you know, where, is, where is the different perspective? Because you're not making the best decision if you aren't getting a variety of different perspectives. Yeah, once you understand that, then you know your ego doesn't have to get involved in the disagreement. You don't have to bring your power of position to shut it down. You actually open up to it and think, oh, what can this person teach me? So that's kind of how I see it anyway. So the welcoming though is a journey. Learning to welcome and seek alternative points of view requires us to open up to the possibility that we may not have the only point of view. Which all of us recognize intellectually. <laughs> Accepting yes. that emotionally is, I know for me, even though I believe that completely, it is still a work in progress. It is. It's a, it's a journey. I would recommend if you haven't already, if you're trying to figure out where you want to take your notes, just write down all of the questions that Dr. Allen is recommending that you ask yourself this is a master class in some powerful leadership questions that you can ask yourself to help you become a more effective leader, unleash the talent on your team, get the perspectives and, and lead in a way that is aligned with how the world actually works. And I think if I'm not mistaken, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's part of the core message of leading from the roots, isn't it? Yes. The seeing the, the reality of the system is really part of the message. We've always had life in our organization, um, and, but we don't think our organizations are living systems, even though they're filled with living human beings. So there's always been life, but we've overlaid life with an objectification of people and tasks. And what that does is it, over time, it diminishes people. I loved your, what did you do when you're losing your soul? This is, this is kind of part of that objectification. You lose your connection to purpose. You lose your sense of self and what you're trying to do in relationship to the organization because you're being objectified. You're not being seen as a living human being that brings unique gifts and skills 
And when you do, you know, high performance teams are really built on seeing the uniqueness of each person, accepting and inviting the livingness of the system. And living systems is really the, the direction and flow of all life. And when we make our organizations more machine-like, we're really flowing against that energy. Chapter five. Part of that core message is nature rewards cooperation. That's the, that's the title of chapter five. And you've got a lot of different examples and so forth. One of the things that occurred to me as I was reading that chapter, nature rewards cooperation. There are people, and I'm thinking of particular political leaders and, and different folks who look at nature and draw a very different conclusion. They look at nature and say it's survival of the fittest. It is a competitive hyena eat hyena world out there. And that that's the conclusion we should draw. And I'm curious how you would respond to folks who draw those conclusions and then try to lead that way. Yeah, that whole competition, scarcity, uh, survival of the fittest actually comes from a misuse of Darwin's research. It's become a rationale for a way of leading a system that is fundamentally degenerative, that actually is losing its vitality and its resilience. So Darwin's research actually said that survival was helped the species that was, had the best fit with its environment. It wasn't survival of the fittest in the environment. It was survival of the best fit. So basically, his research was saying those people who are highly adaptive to the changing world are going to do better than those that are fighting it out in some competition and scarcity. But that research has been reshaped for the service of, you know, um, what I would call more of a degenerative mindset, a system that is short-term self-interest so one thing in systems thinking is that every time you optimize a part over the whole, it diminishes the whole. So we have finances and money, making money is kind of a lot of at the core, or sometimes we have power at the core. Uh, and so you serve power at the cost of everything else in the system. That's kind of what's closed down the cooperation in Washington, I think. <laughs> Well, and I appreciate you, uh, you going there with a reference. I mean, at least in this day and age, it does seem that way that the, you know, and using the academic language, the system is degenerative, which is a nice uh, sanitized way of saying it's tearing itself apart, right? Yeah. 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 And that's really one of the reasons why I wrote the book is that I think that system is dying. It's a paradigm that's in its death throes. This may be optimistic for some people to hear that, but I think whether it happens next week or 10 years from now, that way of thinking is getting lots of feedback that says it's not very adaptive to what's going on. Um, you know, nature defines profit as evolution. Isn't that a lovely idea? Uh, evolution of the whole system where the whole ecological system benefits. And we don't define you know, growth or evolution that way. We define it by very simple, concrete, did we make money or not this quarter? Um, and we need to move beyond that to get to restorative and regenerative design. And nature has 3.8 years, 8 billion years of um, 
regenerative design. It's survived five mass extinctions, and there's still life on this planet. So if we're going to learn how to do regenerative design, then we need to understand how nature designs itself. How that works. One of the specific invitations you make talking about nature rewards cooperation and, and leading in this way, you say that we need to let go of being ruled by scarcity and fear. And that really struck me for a couple of reasons. One is I agree with the benefits from both an individual and a team and a system and an organization perspective when we can step out of that. But the other reason it struck me is because I think that there there's a good argument to be made that so many of the problems we face as leaders in organizations or in society are the result of scarcity and fear. Human beings are, are quite capable of being horrible to one another yeah. in the presence of scarcity and fear. And so, you know, I take all of that down to the level of, of a leader who is listening today and thinking, okay, how do I let go of being ruled by scarcity and fear? What does that look like for me at work? How, how can I do that in a way that is going to be meaningful and help me to unleash and be more collaborative and, and the things that we've been talking about? Well, scarcity is interesting because nature would teach us that it taps the power of limits. So as a gardener, I live in a northern climate and we do only, only zone three plants and trees survive in the place that I live. So I love, I grew up in Pennsylvania and I love these big, beautiful rhododendrons that they have there, but they don't grow in Minnesota. So I can't have them in my garden. I can have a hybrid, uh, but I can't have the ones that I grew up, to, up with. And that's because nature within limits, life thrives. But in our culture in the U.S., we don't do limits very well. And so this inability to accept limits also triggers this sense of scarcity. There's this beautiful a book called A Beautiful Constraint that I read, and it talks about sources of abundance, for example. And it uses nature's idea of, um, of these mutualistic relationships that are so natural to them, like the clownfish who generates oxygen, likes to hide in the kelp beds. The kelp beds are, are, have an abundance of camouflage, but they don't have enough oxygen. And so these two species, plant and, and fish, come together to create a mutualistic beneficial relationship. Nature is filled with those. I would think that the scarcity thing would be, when you have, when you're worried about scarcity, I would ask yourself, is if you accepted the limit, what other innovation and creativity could help you drive your work? And oftentimes that's really where the great innovation energy comes from. So we have reframed limits as scarcity, and then we humanly look at scarcity, and then we create victimization. I don't have an abundance, therefore I must be a victim. So this scarcity and, this, uh, scarcity and victimization go hand in hand. And you can't lead from a victimization place. So you've got to figure out your own path out of it some way, some shape, somehow. For me, tapping the power of limits, just acknowledging the limits of the system and then unleashing the innovation to figure out how do we get to where we want to go 
within these limits is really a freeing thing for me. So that helps me let go of scarcity. Fear is another thing, another kind of journey, like really welcoming resistance. Uh, you know, how do you recognize when you're afraid and when fear is interfering with what's possible for you? you know, sometimes I, I create these kind of preset um, mental kind of messages in my head that is helping me trigger when some emotion shows up. So if I'm still worrying about a conversation 20 minutes later, then I have a little mental script that goes, pops up in my head. It's like, okay, what, what really is triggering for you here in this conversation? You can't seem to work it out. And that allows me to go back into my emotions and see, is it a fear? Is it a past experience that was similar that I got hurt in? And then that helps you bring consciousness. Um, so consciousness can be a beautiful way out of fear. It's not the only one. Um, sometimes you just have to face it and go ahead because to be silent is not really an option based on your passion and your, your values. Fear and our, our emotions are really deeply, um, they interfere with nature, nature's lessons because nature doesn't have fear in the way humans do. They don't have consciousness in the way that humans do. And often it's our consciousness and our emotions that actually make us tone deaf to the lessons of mm. the systems. Mm. So much wisdom there. The notion of reframing scarcity, acknowledging the limits, and then asking, and we call it the how can I question, how can I yeah. within these limits succeed at doing whatever it is that, that we're trying to do and asking and taking that question to the team and, and not having to answer it yourself and embracing the cooperation, unleashing the energy and the talent and so forth. And I love the example of the beautiful constraint that you were talking about. That's a great book for those that haven't read it. You know, modern day examples of that, how can I type of question embracing constraints? You know, we, uh, one that always comes to mind is somebody at some point or some, some buddies sat in a room and said, how can we run a transportation company and not own a single vehicle? Right. Right. And then Uber and Lyft were created. And somebody did that and said, how can we run a lodging company and not have a single room of inventory, not own a single building? And Airbnb was born. And, you know, the opportunity that scarcity provides when we reframe it as these are the limits of the system. And now how can I succeed within these? All sorts of things are possible. And notice what both of those examples did. They redrew boundaries. They said, what interactions will make this work instead of how do we gather the resources to own all of these things so we can control it? It's a very different frame. Very different way of thinking. Well, tell us where to get the book, Leading from the Roots, Nature-Inspired Leadership Lessons for Today's World. Amazon, any, any bookstore can, if they don't have it on their shelves, can order it for you. And if you enjoy these kinds of ideas and like to have them in little snippets, you can sign up for my blog. I, I write a weekly blog on, you know, what bees can teach us about cycles of work and rest. And oh, very cool. So where do like we, follow, give us the URL. What's the address for that blog? It's uh, KathleenAllen.net. All right. Fantastic. So I will put that link in the show notes as well as uh, an image and link of the book so that people oh, can thank you. get there and sign up for the blog, which I will be doing immediately after we finish <laughs> recording today. 
last question I'd like to wrap up with when you think of, you know, all of the frontline, middle level, frontline leaders, middle level managers out there, what's your number one skill that you would recommend that leaders invest in for themselves to be a more effective leader, a more influential person, and, and somebody who's really able to lead from the roots the way that, that we've been talking about today? I would say, number one, there are many people out there that are unconsciously already doing this. And they're really good at building wonderful teams. And they do it through building, being authentic themselves and knowing how to build relationships. I believe all change flows through relationships at the speed of trust. So as your frontline leaders, managers, if you can build relationships based on trust, you can pretty much get anything done. Trust is the currency of leadership, isn't it? And it's so obvious, really, when we think about it, when we just reflect on our own careers, who are those people that have been our supervisors or have been our um, community leaders that have really been effective? And why did we follow? Why did we cooperate? Why did we engage? Ask those questions and you'll find your own path. See what, your, what those answers would do for you. I always, I love this question. I do organizational audits sometimes, culture audits. And one of my favorite questions is, what generates positive energy for you at work? And what generates negative energy for you at work? And the answers of those, those two questions can be extraordinarily really revealing to the quality of what's going on in the culture and also what are some strategies and ways out of it. And that was one more wisdom-filled practical <laughs> question that you can put on your list of questions to ask yourself and your team coming out of this interview. Kathleen, thank you so much. That was a fantastic uh, just buffet of wisdom and ways for us to lead more effectively and in alignment with how the world actually works. Thank you so much for that. Oh, you're very welcome. It was really a pleasure. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.